Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's been an eventful year in Georgia politics. We tackled so many big stories on Political Rewind that choosing the top ten was a Herculean task. But never fear, we have our list. And today we'll talk with our panel about the biggest stories of 2018. Political Rewind starts now. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It is a special edition of the show. We have had an extraordinary year in politics, and now we're going to try to count down what we think are probably the top 10 political stories of 2018. There are some good ones. I'm not sure everybody at this uh, table today agrees with the ones that we've picked, but we'll start that way with our all-star panel. AJC's uh, lead political writer, Jim Galloway, is here. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday paper oversees the Political Insider blog at PoliticallyGeorgia at MyAJC.com. Thanks for being here, Jim. Great, great to be here. Across from you, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, your colleague Greg Bluestein is uh, with us. Uh, Greg is uh, one of a team of political reporters, but you're the one who's got the byline on the front page every single day. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Um, Amy uh, uh, Steigerwald is uh, with us as well. She's a a professor of political science at Georgia State University, and you're one of the people who this year we've really loved getting to know and having you on the show more regularly. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to be here. And across from you, political analyst Patricia Murphy, who is a fairly regular uh, panelist as well. Uh, You write for Roll Call, for The Daily Beast, for Garden and Gun. And and, uh, Patricia, you worked with two Georgia U.S. senators, Max Cleland and uh, before that, Sam Nunn. Yes. So thank you. I've tried to hold down a job for a couple years in a row, but sometimes (laughs) it doesn't work out well. All right. Uh, We're going to start looking at what uh, our senior producer, Tom Faust, listed as the top 10 stories uh, in Georgia politics over the last year. Uh, one of them, and we put this at position number 10, Jim Galloway, the death of former governor and U.S. Senator Zell Miller, a towering figure in Georgia politics for many, many decades. Yeah, we've had to say goodbye to a good number of people this year, but this one hurt. Yeah. This one hurt. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't uh, unexpected. His family had served notice that he had been uh, suffering from uh, dementia related to Parkinson's disease. But this, it, it kind of marked the end of a, a just a, 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 a fantastic era, the last, the last best era for, for Georgia Democrats. Uh, uh, Zell Miller was responsible for for uh, instituting the state lo- lottery. If you've got a, if you've got a kid who was had uh, got the Hope Scholarship, he's the guy you think you think. Uh, this is the fellow who probably was very much responsible for reviving Bill Clinton's presidential ambitions in 1992, hooking him up with with James James Carville Carville and, and Paul Begala. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's an interesting piece of his legacy, Patricia. Uh, because to help Bill Clinton coming out of what he expected would be a possibility that Clinton would struggle a bit in New Hampshire, Zell Miller actually moved the Georgia primary forward so it came right after New Hampshire 
and with the expectation that he could help him win the primary in Georgia. And in fact, that's what happened. And that was the beginning of Clinton's path to success to the Democratic nomination. Yes, and Zell Miller always had a way of being just a little ahead of the curve on politics in a lot of ways. And he was one of the very few Americans who has ever spoken at both the Democratic National Convention and a Republican National Convention and really seemed to mean every word of every speech that he gave <laughs> in his cases. Yeah. Greg, much to the dismay of Georgia Democrats, he had given the 92 keynote speech on behalf of Clinton and then turned around and gave a fiery and angry speech at George W. Bush's uh, renomination uh, in 2004. You got it. And, and the telling thing about his death was that both of them showed up at his funeral along with former President Jimmy Carter. So three U.S. former U.S. presidents were all at his funeral. And as Jim mentioned, I mean, to Georgians, they all remember that too. But to so many of us, his enduring legacy is the Hope Scholarship, and I'm one of the many students who went to UGA because of him. And Amy, you've dealt with students at Georgia State who were there because of Zell's uh, Hope Scholarship, obviously. Most decidedly, and I think one of the biggest things that we can see from this Hope Scholarship has been really the sort of massive trajectory of UGA, Georgia Tech, and also places like Georgia State and Georgia Southern. Um, you know, as of right now, I think that's also aided with students staying there for graduate school, too. So, for example, the Georgia State Law School is actually now ranked higher than UGA's law school, um, I think in part because of that track that's going in there. The other thing, which I did not know this, is when he was lieutenant governor, he's actually the one that established the Georgia Legislative Internship Program, which allows juniors and seniors in college to be able to work um, from across the state to work in the legislature and work at the state local level um, to be able to find out about politics and get more involved in it. And there's been a number of now sitting uh, state representatives and senators who originally started out as legislative interns. You know, uh, Bill, you, you'd mentioned the, the, the bridges that, that Zell burned when he made that 2002 <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. address at the, at the convention. And, and, and ultimately, I was able to ask him about that. And he had a late-life religious con conversion. Uh, to and that's how he explained most of, most of it. Uh, uh, he, 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 he had campaigned as a pro-choice uh, candidate. Mm -hmm. he, he, then he came out and spoke at uh, anti-abortion rallies over at the state capitol. Uh, but it's, it's, it's worth noting that at the very, very end, when he was still able to move around, uh, he, he made a concerted effort to make amends with, with many of the people that he had, that, that he had uh, broken up with, in, including Paul Begala. Uh, the, the political consultant, Bill Shipp, uh, the AJC, AJC newspaper columnist. Uh, we remember Zell Miller fondly. Very quick story. Uh, when my father died a number of years ago, uh, I went to Chicago for the funeral, and uh, Governor Miller at the time, who I had fought with off and on, as most reporters did, uh, had had his office track me down to a relative's house, which was kind of interesting. And Zell got on the phone, and it was one of the sweetest condolence phone calls or any kind of conversation I could have asked for. And at the end of it, Zell said in that mountain man voice of his, Bill, I just want you to know I love you. And it was such a moving moment from a guy who could be so entirely irascible and difficult, and yet he had a huge heart. And that's how I think we'll remember him. He did. And, and, and one more thing, he had a huge heart for his hometown yeah. uh, as well in North Georgia. And, and, and I went to his funeral. They had several funerals, but I went to a ceremony there. And you could just see the, 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 the love for him uh, in Young Harris. All right. Zell Miller, we remember you fondly. Um, another big story this year, Amy.
is uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, her first mm -hmm. year as mayor of the city of Atlanta. It has been a difficult year for her. She's had some successes, most notably finally getting the Gulch deal pushed through. But even that right now has some additional wrinkles. How do you assess the first year of Keisha Lance Bottoms? I think she's done really quite well. I mean, she came in and almost immediately had to deal with the fact that there were a number of ongoing corruption probes. And it turns out that it went in pretty high into the former mayor's uh, administration. There's also sort of questions about whether or not it involves uh, Kasim Reed himself. And so she had to very quickly sort of address the fact of whether or not there were a lot of thoughts that she would be sort of tied in with that. And so she had a fairly quickly, um, she cleaned house and really sort of removed everyone and brought in a whole new group and has dealt with that, I think, really very well and also managed to finally bring home some of these sort of long negotiated uh, issues that have been outstanding. One of the biggest ones being, of course, the Gulch deal. Um, that's really been debated on and off for about 10 years and finally got passed. There's now some wrinkles, though, with uh, the school board. School board. She did get her comeuppance on the attempt to uh, figure out a way to get the city uh, to help pay uh, through tax relief for uh, a portion of this new project, this enormous new mini city that's going to be built there. Uh, she went to the city council the first time out, I think expecting Patricia, she's got it. They'll, they'll be glad to support this. And they pushed back on her and said, no way. She had to come back to him a second time. Yeah, she, they pushed back on her very hard. And I think it's because I don't know that the city really made the case publicly that all of that public money was going to be needed and really required. Yeah. And where will it end up? And at what point do the developers start to sort of paddle their own boat? And why is it the city who's having to do so much rowing? Um, she obviously needed the help of the governor to get that through, some support with actually with the city council. Um, but but I think it did show her ability to what I think is really important for a politician, and she obviously has it, is to bounce back from defeat and keep pushing forward and find a way. If you can't get through the front door, go through the side door, go through a window. Um, so she was very persistent in that and I think came back and became very strategic in the way that she made her case. And I think that's a really good sign for her going forward. Uh, Greg, I think it's interesting that Patricia pointed out that Governor Deal stepped in and said to the city council, please, we, we need this. We've subsequently learned what we didn't know. You broke the story. Why why was this so important to the governor? Well, it was it was a contingency deal. If that if the if the Gulch funding didn't go through, then Georgia couldn't secure the headquarters relocation of Norfolk Southern from Virginia, which is these five hundred seventy five million dollars new headquarters with uh, almost a thousand new jobs, a big sort of crowning achievement for the end of Governor Nathan Deal's tenure and a big starting point for for Mayor Bottoms. I think if you look at her tenure, though, her first year, the common thread is transparency. She faced a lot of questions about transparency stemming from Mayor Reed's administration. Uh, she's, she's rewritten some transparency laws in order to be more open, to try to be more open. And then with the Gulch deal, there's questions about transparency, too. They rewrote that Gulch package two or three times because it couldn't go through the city council because city councilors, council members complained that there was not enough time to review it. And she, as, as Patricia mentioned, she rewrote it and, and, and evolved, I guess, and came back. Made it happen. Uh, Jim, one last note about uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and we've already kind of covered it, and that's uh, the relationship between City Hall and the governor's office. You, she's now a year into office, but now she's got to forge a relationship with Brian Kemp that's going to be important to both of them moving forward. Right, and you've got a movement in the state Senate uh, that that could break out in the open in, uh, uh, in, in this new year. Uh, they want to to consider state oversight of Hartsfield Jackson International Airport. That could become a very, very 
divisive issue? Yeah, I have no doubt this is a story that we are all going to be talking about on Political Rewind as the legislature goes into session. It's going to be big. Jim, as long as the ball's in your court, uh, transit, bigger than ever. It's been big for the last couple of years, but this past session of the legislature and in looking at what's happening in metro counties, the biggest push for transit ever in uh, in the state of Georgia. Right. We now have the ATL board yeah. uh, <laughs> that, that oversees that over the, the, that will oversee the expansion of transit in Metro Atlanta. I will be very interested in seeing how it operates. You you do have uh, at least uh, in, in in my home county of Cobb County, the representative there is Earl Earhart. He's he will be be a former state lawmaker next year. Uh, he has not always been a fan of it. Uh, I think it shows a continued reluctance of Cobb County on that part. But also on that uh, that that same board, you have Charlotte Nash, who's the chairman Gwinnett of Gwinnett County. County, who has become a very vociferous uh, uh, supporter of extending heavy rail out into Gwinnett. Yeah, but we're going to wait, <clears throat> Greg, to see how Gwinnett County votes on approving a transit plan. That's still uh, pending into 2019. You got it. That's a March vote. And uh, it's become an economic development argument. You, you, you once heard Republicans stand steadfast against uh, any sort of transit, mass transit expansion, and now they're seeing it as an economic development argument because the headquarters that are moving to Metro Atlanta are most likely moving near MARTA transit lines. That doesn't necessarily just mean in the city, that also means the suburbs. And even the other day when there was an a, a announcement of new jobs in Gwinnett County, you heard the, the firm that was moving there, the conglomerate that was moving there, saying, uh, expressing hope that this transit referendum would pass in Gwinnett County. So it's an, an entirely different argument. And the governor has kind of evolved in that position, too. And even one of his last big expenditures was $100 million to bus rapid transit up the spine of Georgia 400. Amy, we still will wait to hear how Governor-elect Kemp mm -hmm. uh, uh, responds to transit. Uh, we can't. It's hard to imagine that he's going to push back on it. Mm -hmm. uh, even though he won his election in rural Georgia, uh, it strikes me that he can't very well uh, put the brakes on something that's moved so far and uh, has momentum of its own. No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that where we're seeing the movement of sort of the demographic shifts and people moving are more towards the cities. Um, and in fact, it's even less to the exurbs and more now to the suburbs and back into the city proper. And one of the things that goes along with that is really this need for mass transit. Um, one of the issues I think that's striking Cobb that they've run into is they move the Brave Stadium out there and it's difficult for people to get to the game, right? Even if there were some issues with getting to it downtown, now the lack of MARTA going to the game, of MARTA getting to a lot of these large companies that are being built is a difficulty, and it potentially causes issues for uh, future development coming in. And uh, just put a period on this part of the conversation, Patricia, it's not just transit that's part of an overall transportation plan. We're going to soon have, uh, uh, we're talking about dedicated truck lanes on I-16 uh, up in Gainesville, uh, Governor Deal's home territory. Uh, he's a, a new, essentially, land port, inland I think, port. is the way, an inland port. So transportation, which, you know, used to be only highways, only pavement in this state, Patricia, is changing dramatically. Yes. Well, Atlanta and mostly Georgia itself has developed because of transit. You know, we're the crossroad of two railroad lines, and then look what happened uh, 100 years later. Um, but uh, to Greg's point in terms of economic development, when Atlanta lost out on an Amazon headquarters, one of the big problems for their pitch was that there is just not the infrastructure, there's not the public transportation that especially high-tech companies want to see when they're moving into a large city. And uh, 
Uh, they lag quite a bit behind somebody like Washington, D.C. that did get HQ2. Um, and even when uh, my, some of my friends are people who are hiring in the Atlanta region, kids do not want to come out of college and own a car and work at a company that doesn't have access to a MARTA line. And so it just gets it becomes a very granular problem very quickly for companies, and the state has to respond to that if they want to keep attracting large right. businesses. All right, we're going to get to a break. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Governor Deal and his legacy. We're going to talk about Hurricane Michael, Plant Vogel, and a lot more as we continue our look at some of the top 10 stories in Georgia politics this year. We'll be right back. A Seat at the Table is a weekly series hosted by Deneen Milner, Christine White, and Monica Pearson. The mission of A Seat at the Table is to let African-American women have a platform to educate communities about the black women's experience, life, and journey. Today, we're talking about using the N-word. Is a college education still necessary in today's world? Today, we're talking about what it means to be woke. From credit to entrepreneurship, black women are about our business. Join us for A Seat at the Table on GPB. Welcome back to Political Rewind, our top 10 Georgia political stories of 2018. Greg, I want to start this with you, because as we record this program, you have just come from Governor Nathan Deal's offices where you did something of an exit interview with him. So let's spend a couple of minutes talking about his legacy and particularly start with the focus of how much he did to transform criminal justice. And that might be his, his singular domestic, uh, you know, his policy initiative, which is rewriting the state's criminal justice rules uh, in order to, to, to remove most nonviolent offenders from costly prison sentences and divert them to treatment programs and other, other sort of court treatments that weren't available beforehand. That saved the state hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, require, uh, eliminated the need for new, new prisons, and also just changed the way that we treat uh, offenders and just and just now, we saw that just the other day, we saw the U.S. Senate pass its own criminal justice initiatives that are, that are largely mirrored after Georgia's. Yeah. Um, Patricia, he became one of the best-loved governors that we've had in this state for some couple of decades at least. And it's across party lines. It is. And when I uh, was covering this governor's race, I had a number of Democrats and Republicans say to me, I just hope Brian Kemp turns out like Nathan Deal. I really hope that he's selling himself as sort of an uber conservative. But when he comes in to office, he's going to be doing the types of things that Governor Deal has done. And I think that his tenure has been relatively apolitical um, or less political and less partisan than maybe some Democrats feared and even some Republicans worried about. I think his position, especially on religious just freedom um, was a real moment for him. Um, and then he also did things like kind of keep the trains running on time. The second time there was a snowstorm, the state had sort of realized its lessons and he very quickly pivoted to sort of have streets clear, just the very basics of governing a state. And so um, I uh, talk to people all the time who really have such an affection for him. And it's not because of the things that he says, because we don't hear that much from him. It's because of the things that he's done. But it, I think that Patricia makes a good point, Amy. Um, I, one of the turning points that strikes me for, for this bipartisan uh, uh, respect for Nathan Deal was the veto message on the religious liberty bill. He was so personal in the approach he took to talking about why he um, uh, wanted to, was going to veto the bill. Um, and also campus carry the first time around he vetoed. Yeah. 
I think those were moments when Democrats looked at him and said, this is a truly a man who has the best interests of our state, not just partisan interests at heart. No, I think that's a very good way to put it. And I, I agree with you very much with the religious liberty, um, especially that particular statement in which he sort of explained about why it is that we needed to make sure that it was open to everybody that this crossed these various areas that we needed to understand that religious liberty was about truly respecting right everybody's different beliefs and also not wanting to shut it out. And I think there were also real concerns sort of thinking about what was happening other places of how would Georgia be perceived after what had happened, uh, for example, in North Carolina when they passed a similar bill and this real concern if he wanted to make sure that much like with uh, Norfolk Southern, that companies were moving here, that they saw Georgia as a place that they wanted to come to. And I think the thing about the Religious Liberty Bill also is that it scared, was scaring very publicly a lot of very prominent uh, companies who were thinking about relocating. And that was something that was terribly important to make sure that Georgia seemed open. Jim, you're welcome to pick up on any of that, or you can add your thoughts about well, what well, was, his would, legacy will be. I would say two things. Uh, number one, he, he, he did kind of fill that grandfather niche. <laughs> we, we kind of we, we kind of needed and 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 it didn't fit so well with with Sonny Purdue. I'm not sure that Brian Kemp can 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 fill that role. But I think the most important thing he did was he recognized he he established uh, a link between economic development and cultural issues. Mm. I, that's, to me, that's tremendous. And and we uh, you, uh, you mentioned his uh, his his uh, veto of of uh, the religious liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Bill. Uh, Bill, the ex explanation he gave was really, it was it was a masterpiece of theology because yeah. what it did was it took it it, it, it took the old Baptist uh, antipathy toward government and said, look, a religion that is protected by government is a religion that's vulnerable to government. Uh, and and that was that was that was that was kind of a hearkening back to the 1950s, 60s, and 70s yeah. Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Greg, we're going to watch to see very carefully. Uh, Patricia said, "How's Brian Kemp going to do in that role?" Uh, we're going to watch those social issues as they bubble up in the legislative session and wait to see how uh, Governor Luck Kemp deals with them this time around. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is, and I'll take this is what Stacey Abrams would often say on this campaign trail: that Governor Deal was not a moderate. He was not a centrist. He had some centrist policies. But he was a conservative. He passed two gun expansions. He passed immigration crackdowns. He signed immigration crackdowns. He signed tax cuts. But what he was also was a pragmatist, and he worked across party lines. And if you look at his, some of his signature policy achievements, from, from the uh, criminal justice to transportation infrastructure investments down the line, many of them passed overwhelmingly, and some of them, including criminal justice, passed unanimously. Yeah. And that was yeah. because he had an open-door approach to lawmakers from both parties. All right. Well, he will uh, leave office after eight years as governor of Georgia in uh, by mid-January. I think that we, we see the new governor come in second Monday of January, the 14th of January. So uh, thank you uh, from a lot of people out there who believe Nathan Deal has done a good job for this state. Uh, Hurricane Michael, Amy. This, this was a storm that caught everyone off guard because it moved through much more quickly and more powerfully than the predictions had been for it, and it devastated parts of middle and south Georgia. Farmers there are going to take years, if not decades, they say, to try to recover. Um, 
and the legislature did its part by coming in and putting, to, you know, in a special session to give some $500 million worth of relief, but it's going to be a long time before we see that whole part of the state turn around. It really is. I mean, there were a number of the chicken, the poultry industry in particular was really sort of hard hit the number of chicken coops that were destroyed. There was also real issues with the uh, peach crops and the soybean crops, uh, which are also uh, the soybeans in particular are having concerns with the tariffs as well. And so there's going to be a real concern there. And I think that is one of the reasons that Brian Kemp in many ways was focused on rural Georgia because there's going to have to be a lot of uh, attention given to that. It's a backbone of Georgia industry and sort of uh, Georgia society, and it goes into a lot of the things that we're doing. And But I think the other side of it is that may is sometimes difficult to think about is how much of the recovery still has to happen. Yeah. Um, it's been a year to give some idea, 10 years after New Orleans, after it was hit by Katrina, there were still parts of it that weren't reopened yet. And so that's how long it takes. When you plant crops, you don't get something that first year. It takes a number of cycles for it to really regenerate. And so it's going to be a long time. Jim, agriculture remains the number one industry in Georgia. It does. And it's going to remain that way for, for a good while. I think to me, the one thing that Hurricane Michael might have done is, I, I think it, at least into a into the, the, the political sphere, it really brought the issue of climate change front and center because it was it was it was the heated gulf that gave that gave michael the intensity and the speed that really surprised uh, everyone and 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 uh, you mentioned soybeans i mean the cotton crop the cotton mm-hmm. we had all these cotton balls that were just blossoming and 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 michael wiped them yeah. completely out yeah. and i so i think you're going to see farmers are go, start are going to have to start taking that weather intensity into account. Uh. Yeah, we're, it's going to be interesting to see if we're going to really see any concerted effort in Georgia or anywhere in the country to address these issues. But it, as Jim points out, cotton, Patricia, pecan trees just devastated, uh, blueberry crops. There's very few crops in Georgia that weren't hit by Michael. And right now, as we tape this show, we're waiting to see whether uh, a funding, a government funding bill is in fact going to send relief to Georgia farmers that they so desperately need. Uh, that's exactly right. And uh, the the worst part for Georgia farmers is that no matter how much uh, hurricane or uh, disaster relief that you receive, you're rarely made whole. And so the question for a lot of these farmers is going to be how much did they have in reserve? How long will it take to bring those crops back? Pecan trees take decades yeah. to bring back yeah. um, something like a cotton field. Those were just pulled up by the roots. There was an aerial shot of a cotton field where it looked like they had been picked, but really it just all had been ripped out yeah. by the hurricane. And so this it's not going to be, I'll write you a check and see you next year. It's going to be a lot harder than that. Well, and it, it, because we are on the air statewide, our hearts continue to go out to all of you who are continuing to struggle with a very difficult uh, situation, a difficult uh, year. 2018 for all of you. Jim, plant Vogel. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's on our top 10 list, but nothing really has changed in terms of plant Vogel. We started the year with Georgia Power saying we want to continue expanding. We need two more cooling towers, two more plants. Uh, and yes, in the long run, customers are going to have to pay for it. We had a political campaign where candidates for PSE uh, came in saying we don't want customers to pay it. And we had some EMCs 
who looked as if they might be willing to back out of the project because they were worried about overruns. And still might. I think this is one of those situations. Sometimes the most important news is what doesn't happen. This is, this is, this is one of those cases. This time last year, the State Public Service Commission uh, voted to, uh, to, to uh, take up Georgia Power's initiative to, to, to substitute itself as the, as the chief general contractor in the construction of these two nuclear reactors. Uh, we had two, uh, two PSC members up for re-election. One, one was Stan Wise, the chairman. Uh, the other one was Chuck Eaton. Stan Wise, of course, bowed out. Uh, he was replaced by Tricia Pridemore. Pridemore. And that, that, that kind of put all the onus on, on uh, Republican incumbent Chuck Eaton, who was the fellow who cast, uh, who, one of those who cast the, the, the pro-Vogel uh, votes. Then you had, uh, and you had uh, two good Democratic candidates, uh, both women, Don Randolph running against Trisha Pridemore, and then uh, uh, Lindy, Lindy Miller. Miller running against, uh, against Chuck Eaton. Lindy Miller drew Chuck Eaton into a runoff. But I will tell you what, the, the important thing to, to me was in, in, in that contest was to see the, the, the emphasis that the nuclear power industry placed on this particular race. It was the, it's the only nuclear construction uh, job right now. And they poured what uh, well over a million dollars into, the into Chuck Eaton's campaign, and and in fact, uh, Jim just said an important thing, Greg. Uh, after the failure, after the collapse of a couple of the big companies who were building these plants in South Carolina and Georgia, South Carolina bowed out of you that. Out of that, Georgia continues. It is the only ongoing nuclear power construction plant in the country. You got it, and, and, and that's exactly Jim's point. He said sometimes the most important things. Or what you know, what doesn't happen? Yeah. And in South Carolina, it didn't happen, right? In South Carolina, they they pulled the plug on the project, and that's billions of dollars in investment that was kind of waylaid. In in George's case, you heard it from the governor on down uh, that this had to continue. The project had to continue. They made an economic development argument, uh, and really kind of stifled um, some of the at least the, the outspoken opposition, um, and even candidates from both parties continue to support Plant Vogel. The IBEW endorsed Sure, Eden. it's 5,000 jobs. 5,000 jobs, and so it made Democrats really queasy about coming out against it. But, Patricia, the ongoing issue that we're going to still see, and Lindy Miller fought with Chuck Eaton about this in their uh, uh, race, uh, is we are all, as Georgia Power or EMC customers in this state, we're continuing to pay on our power bill a portion of the construction costs. Uh, Lindy Miller said she didn't want that to continue. George Power Southern Company would have to absorb the cost. Chuck Eaton said, well, for the time being, we're not going to add to the cost. But down the road, customers are going to pay more uh, because of Plant Vogel. And I'm not sure that's a completely resolved issue at this point. I don't think it's a resolved issue, but I think that the failure uh, of what the Democrats have done in their argument is there's not a clear alternative. Uh, they're not saying, well, if we stop doing this, this is what's going to happen, and this way it'll be better for the state. Um, when you have very large utilities uh, that are backed by private and public money, if the private money goes away, where's that going to come from? And so, um, yes, these are multi-billion dollar companies, but there's not a lot of corp there it's not a lot of competition out there to come in and take up the reins yeah. instead. And so it's, uh, I, I think uh, both sides know that they've got the state over a barrel on this one. All right. Um, tell you what, we've still got four uh, stories that we're going to get to. All of them relate, surprisingly, to the 2018 election cycle. Who would have guessed? We'll do that when we come back with more on this special edition of Political Rewind.
is a deal to be made there. It comes down to the vote. When On this election night, two wins in the biggest races. You broke your silence. We move forward. But then you paid the price. When the smoke clears, you end up the world. That's what you told me. Just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me. We ride the highs and Calls for action after the school shooting in Florida. It's hard to say what motivated President Trump to threaten to veto this bill. What do they say about the use of these weapons? This is wild times. Wild times with big issues. Coming back to prison is not an option. All that and more. When the smoke clears. Welcome back. Amy Steigerwald, we're counting down the top 10 stories. And one of the big ones is women in the election cycle, mm -hmm. not just here in Georgia, but across the country. Uh, we elected. Let's, so let's start with Georgia. OK, uh, in Georgia, um, you have uh, Lucy McBath, a Democrat, mm -hmm. replacing another woman, uh, Karen Handel. Uh, uh, in the 7th District, right next door, you had uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, the Democrat, a strong candidate uh, against uh, the incumbent. You had two women down, but you had three women. You did Sarah Amico Riggs. Talk to us about what the, uh, uh, what it, what the landscape looks like in terms of women in this state. I think in terms of women in the state, what we're starting to see is a much larger growing bench of women running for office, of seeing that as an option, and that is really sort of mirroring what's going on around the country. The numbers that have gone up this past year, really it sort of doubled uh, from the last election cycle, the number of women that were running for office, and that actually made it into the general election. And the number that's entering into Congress um, is the largest ever. It's going to be 23 percent female, so it means it still is, of course, over 75 percent male. But that shift is a really big one. Um, I think what we're also seeing that's similar in Georgia as to everywhere else, which is something that is sort of the maybe the flip side of the positive grains mm -hmm. that we saw with women, are the fall, though, of female Republican candidates. Um, we're seeing a very large drop, actually, in the number of women that are going to be entering um, into Congress, uh, as well as actually in the state house on the Republican side that are female. We saw the same thing on, on the state level, that there were a number of of uh, Democratic female gains, but uh, Democratic or uh, Republican female losses. And so I think that's something that's really going to be sort of a struggle there is to figure out how to, for the Republican Party to address that, because they're really losing this large segment and women are 51 percent of the population. Patricia? Yeah, well, the exact same dynamic is going on in Washington. Yeah. And there are mm -hmm. the 13 House Republican women who are left in the, in the uh, Republican conference have sounded the alarm to the Republican leaders and say, we've got to do different. We have to do better and be different for women voters. And those voices are already being shut down by Republican leadership. And so I think the Republicans are going to have a major problem going forward. But the biggest problem Republicans had in this election cycle among women was their president and the fact um, that when I, as early as January of 2017, when I was covering the John Ossoff special election, the difference in the tenor of women voters, the activism of women voters, and the type of women voters I was talking to who were coming out on weeknights and Saturdays, these were younger women, professional women, that entire suburban uh, swath in, uh, in Atlanta, and as well as a lot of the other suburbs across the country, really driven by women, very upset uh, with the president. Yeah. Uh, let's come back to Georgia for a minute. Jim, you were one of the first people that made 
made me realize that how the how women were driving the Democratic ticket, how many women were on the state ballot in Georgia. Right. It was it was it was phenomenal. And 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 I think it does set up the, the major question for 2019 uh, and, and, and 2020 after that. What, what I find really amazing after this is is the uh, let's take this, the U.S. Senate races coming up. Uh, Republican incumbent David Perdue. Uh, let's presume he runs for reelection. Just think of the names that are being bandied about yeah. right now. Yeah. You start with 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 Stacey Abrams. You could have Teresa Tomlinson, right. uh, the uh, who, who will mayor of Columbus, as yep. mayor of Columbus. Uh, Sarah Riggs Amico. Uh, you have you have her. It wouldn't surprise me to see uh, quite a few. Only only as you know, as kind of a in, in a second tier. Are you are you hearing the names of people like Jason Carter, uh, who who? four years ago was dominating the talk yeah. in Georgia. Um, Greg, we're going to have more than 100 new women uh, in uh, Congress. I've got that number, I think, right, yes. don't mm-hmm. I, Patricia? Mm-hmm. And you know it's really fascinating? Uh, Alexandra um, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts, these women have got an entirely different dynamic in terms of how they're reaching out to their constituents. They're recording on their phones the inner workings of what they're doing up there. They're sharing them on uh, Instagram and on other social media platforms. They're bringing us all in in a way that I don't think it's ever happened before. And maybe it's youth, but it's also something about the way women are taking on these tools. And many of them are unapologetically progressive, and that's changing the Democratic caucus in Washington. It's going to change the Democratic caucus in Georgia as well. We saw the first electoral implications of this in the special election last year when pretty much any every woman on the ballot, except for a handful, won their special election contest, including the mayor of Atlanta, including several open Georgia legislature seats. Uh, and, and that has changed the way that Georgia policymakers are looking at certain debates, including health care, including criminal justice, including uh, medical marijuana. A lot of debates are being upended. Well, that takes us, in fact, to another of our top ten stories, Patricia, the the power and impact of women on Georgia politics. Uh, One of the big stories is here, Metro Atlanta, uh, North Metro Atlanta, looking more blue than ever before. Yes, absolutely. And I would say that really was driven by women voters and those suburban women voters. Um, And it's something that I think, to me, might even be the biggest story for Georgia Mm. in uh, 2018 and certainly going into 2020. For the very first time in probably two decades, Georgia is starting to seem, from a national perspective, like a battleground state, a a place where Democrats can play and have the potential to win. It felt a little bit early uh, this cycle. It felt like Stacey Abrams ran a really solid ground campaign um, and probably outperformed what the expectations were of her. But it certainly put national Democrats and Republicans on notice as well that Georgia is a fundamentally different state than it has been. Amy, you're nodding vigorously as you hear Patricia. I think it's very true. I mean, places such as Cobb County, at least on the first batch of the election, not during the runoff, but uh, in November, swept. It went all blue. Right. That hasn't happened in decades. Jimmy Carter. Since Jimmy Carter. Thank you. I was going to say I I was trying to count back exactly when it was. Um, Right. And sort of areas like that and seeing that shift. And I think that really does fundamentally change now of what it looks like. Again, four years ago. Right. While there might have been a solid Democratic candidate to go against uh, Purdue if he runs for reelection. I don't think there would be the ground game in place. The uh, sort of very clear on the ground get out the vote movement that was established 
lost this last election that whoever the Democratic candidate is will this time will be able to pick up from. And as you noted, all of the top contenders are also women, bringing it back to that. Right. And you've got, uh, if, if we can keep on the on the topic of Cobb, of course, in 2020, that's a county where all the, 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 the countywide offices are kind of tied to the presidential election, mm -hmm. which means you could see a, a, a real flip of power and the creation of a Democratic suburban bench. Uh, for 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 the future, uh, the uh, the other part of that is, and it's just not. It, it, this isn't just about gaining office. It's, it can be about policy. You mentioned that we've got this yeah. Gwinnett vote for 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 mass transit coming up in March. Uh, I think the fact that that Gwinnett County won 56 percent Democrat uh, on November 6. I think that bodes awfully well for that vote. Greg, do we have a reason to think that say up in the sixth and the seventh, uh, Cobb Gwinnett? are reliably blue for the foreseeable future? Not yet, but look, and the numbers say, or the numbers so, 54% or so is what Abrams won in Cobb and 57% in Gwinnett County. And Democrats also had a stranglehold on Henry County, a South Metro Atlanta, uh, densely populated suburb as well. All across the board, Democrats flipped 13 seats in both chambers. All but one of them were in northern Metro Atlanta suburbs. The one other one was in Henry County. Yeah. Um, it's a wipeout of, of Republican lawmakers, and you saw Brian Kemp and the rest of the statewide ticket really struggle in the northern Atlanta burbs, and the, the remaining Republican lawmakers from close-in suburbs are feeling like endangered species. Well, go ahead, Patricia. I was just going to say, when we were talking about policies, if I could just bookmark this for the future, I think this will have a profound effect on gun safety and uh, the way that Republicans in the state can sort of barrel forward without a deep conversation about what this means. That's interesting because, of course, one of the issues that Brian Kemp ran on was expanding even more uh, your rights to carry a gun without a permit, wherever you want to, in any way. Yeah. He, he sort of, in his conversations with you, he hasn't emphasized that, but it's you would expect it's going to come back at some point. His constituents are going to want it from him, aren't they? Well, but then also you look at what happened in the 6th District. Lucy McBath ran unabashedly on a gun safety platform, and it's the first time I can remember a Democrat in this state saying, with no apology, this is how I feel and this is the direction that I want to go, and it sort of tells you the mood of those voters. And another sign of that is, is of course, the Trump administration just announced that as of March, it will be illegal to even possess mm -hmm. a bump stock. Yeah. Uh, device that allows you to to mimic automatic fire with a semi-automatic rifle. Yeah. Uh, and and I've got to say, you haven't heard a peep of protest coming out of any Republican, uh, say for me, Bob Barr, I think. Right. Uh, Who, who's of course uh, now uh, working with the National Rifle mm -hmm. Association. Uh, he's got a long history with it, and then uh, but but nothing coming from our Republican congressman. All right. And one last quick question about this change. Uh, with the legislature, well, look, we have seen in previous sessions, Greg, that when Republicans who are in control of the legislature don't like the results they're getting in in districts, legislative districts, they're more than willing, even though we're not in a census year, to change the lines to get back to Republican domination. Could there be an effort to redraw lines in the 6th and the 7th to give Republicans a stronger position there? Or are they f rapidly running out of voters and geography in which to do it? There, there could be an effort, not just in the 6th and 7th, but also some of these imperiled uh, Senate and House districts we talked about in the state legislature. Barry, Barry Loudermilk's district needs uh, propping up. Yeah, Barry Loudermilk's, <laughs> but also if you look at, you know, Fran Miller's old district in Dunwoody, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, David Schaefer's old district in Gwinnett County, Jen Jordan's new district in, in Buckhead area, 
But they're going to come, I mean, they're a sawmill of opposition because it's right before the census. We remember when uh, Roy Barnes uh, was hammered, and maybe uh, one of the reasons he lost re-election was the way that he uh, redistricted and gerrymandered. All right, got to move on. Uh, voting issues. Greg, uh, this election, throughout the entire cycle, the focus of national media and local press covered it as well, although I think, frankly, local media covered it in a more nuanced way. Uh, was all about voter suppression. Was the Republican Party, was Brian Kemp, a Secretary of State, manipulating the election machinery to uh, 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 fix the results? It was a huge story. It was huge, and in some ways it was an inevitable clash because uh, Secretary of State Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams had long feuded over these voting rights issues from well before they both got in the race for governor. And in some ways, this, they, they were the, each other's dream opponents because yeah. they could fight over this <laughs> issue. With Brian Kemp always saying it was about preventing illegal voters, even though there was scant evidence of any illegal voters trying to cast ballots. And Stacey Abrams talking about voter suppression. Um, and, and voter suppression has different, different uh, connotations, different meanings. But Stacey Abrams often argued that it was voter cancellations. It was long lines at polls. It was troubles at early voting. It was it was uneven standards. Absentee ballots, absentee provisional ballots. ballots, yeah. And so the next governor has a lot on his plate. And this is not over, Jim. It's not only going to come up in the legislature. We have lawsuits pending. We have we are nowhere near seeing the end of questions about the 2018 election and those that preceded it. No, and and and, and quite frankly, this has been a, a decade in the building. Because it was it was in 2007 that I think that you saw the first voter ID law uh, passed in Georgia, and 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 yes, from a Republican perspective, uh, that that amounts to, uh, to that that's about ballot security. From a Democratic uh, 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 point of view, it's more about point shaving. It's about shaving the just 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 enough uh, voters off the rolls in order to 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 maybe uh, make make the right outcome a little right. bit easier. A Amy, I want to give you and Patricia a chance to weigh in on this as well. Well, and I think the other things that they're going to also have to struggle with is what a lot of people don't realize is that in the next electoral cycle, we are now required to have some sort of a voting machine that has a paper ballot. So it either needs to be a paper ballot that gets run through later or it's one that prints out a packet. They determined that there wasn't enough time to put them into place for this election, but it's going for the next one. And again, it's adding to this concern of what exactly is going on, the transparency issues that we talked about earlier. Um, and I think we're also going to start to see a lot more looking into this question of people being taken off the rolls because they were inactive for too long. So somebody who was legally registered and then because they sat out a couple of election cycles, they were taken off the rolls and had to get themselves put back on. And that's also, I think, again, of the concern of this issue of are we wanting to make it sort of easier for people to vote or letting people vote right, that want to and, in fact, right, are legally able to yeah. and are, are there and haven't done anything wrong. Patricia, I'm going to give you the last word on this story. Uh, well, I think um, for Democrats who said that voter fraud is really not a problem, there is a House race in North Carolina undecided still because of voter fraud by the Republican side of the aisle. Yeah. So I think that sort of shakes up the old dynamics. Um, I think that the state has a lot of reputational damage to repair, and Brian Kemp has a lot of reputational damage to repair. It may even kind of trim his wings a little bit as he goes into this session, uh, needing to rebuild some bridges that have been uh, broken down. And we know that Stacey Abrams is not going to make that easy for him. 
because she continues to be way out, much more visible than a, than somebody who has just lost an election. We know that she'll run again, and this is going to be an issue that she's going to continue to Well, push. Greg, I'm going to give you a last shot at this <laughs> because I see you were looking to get in. <laughs> yeah, well, my hunch is that she runs again, and she runs against Brian Kemp, not for the U.S. Senate. That's just a hunch. Um, but look, there's about a dozen lawsuits challenging Georgia's voter practices, and the, I think the biggest, uh, most far-reaching of them all is from Stacey Abrams' former, uh, her new group, yeah. Fair Fight Action. She's raising money for it. She's day. raising money for uh -huh. it. She's on the airwaves. So, so you know, if, if lawmakers don't hash out a solution, the courts will. All right, which brings us to uh, our uh, final story, and uh, perhaps the top story we've decided it is, and that's after eight years of one governor. We elect a brand-new governor. The people of Georgia have spoken. Brian Kemp, another Republican, will be the next governor of Georgia. He comes in despite the fact, Patricia, that Democrats' hopes were higher than they've been here. F forget Michelle Nunn and even Jason Carter, who Democrats felt were possibly strong candidates. People thought Stacey Abrams really had a shot. Kemp wins. What do we expect from Brian Kemp? So far, he has been, I think, very measured, uh, really focusing on economic issues, economic development issues. Anybody who watched his primary unfold, I think, would be surprised by the Brian Kemp who's coming forward right now. But I think it's his sort of chance to introduce himself to people, not as a candidate, but as a governor. I think it's a very appropriate first step and one that I think will continue to yield results if he keeps it this way. You know, the, the, the most interesting thing I, I, I'm finding about this is is how the agenda for, for the incoming governor is being has been set by his opponent. We we just finished talking about uh, voting issues and and how 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 the campaign will likely impact uh, positions taken there. Uh, but also, Stacey Abrams's main point was uh, about health care, was about Medicaid expansion, and it's shaping up. Just I mean, as 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 we come to the close of of of, of 2018, you can see the beginnings of. Republicans in the legislature, in the Capitol, getting ready to take up, in some fashion, we don't know what, uh, the idea of drawing down more federal funds for health care. Well, in see, what's interesting about that, Amy, what Jim just said, in terms of how the opposition in some ways is driving the agenda, uh, it's certainly true that Republicans and Brian Kemp himself, who's, you know, owes a lot to rural Georgia, uh, as we look to the future, he's going to have to, we think, I think, uh, look at the issues that matter to suburban Georgia and uh, women voters. And so the kinds of issues that Jim's talking about, uh, he's going to have a hard time ignoring, I would think. No, I think that's very true. And I think many of the ones, even though we count them as being sort of rural issues, they are broader, right? I mean, they are about sort of this economic development. Healthcare certainly affects in rural areas. I mean, Stacey Abrams just as much talked about the need for rural hospitals and, right, Medicaid expansion was really much more about rural areas in many ways than even uh, in the city and in the suburbs. And I think he's going to have to shift to that. I think the part that's going to be interesting and sort of going back to what Patricia was saying is that Brian Kemp previously to 2017 and maybe sort of end of 2017 into start of 2018 was known as a moderate, mm. right? He was not, in fact, this sort of known sort of very far right. And he surprised a lot of people, actually, with the election that he ran. And so the question is going to be, who is he going forward? Is he the person that people sort of remember working in the state house and while he was secretary of state? Or is he going to reflect sort of this new person that he campaigned on? I wouldn't be totally surprised if he switched back to the person that he was previously. Greg, no 
nobody's covered him as much as you have. He's got a balancing act ahead. I mean, he hasn't talked about religious liberty or guns or abortion mm -hmm. or all the campaign vows he made during his primary um, since he won the election. He's talked about uh, boosting teacher pay and school safety and reducing regulations and pocketbook issues. And a lot of the Republicans in, his, in, the, in the House and Senate caucuses are applauding that. They want the focus to be on economic pocketbook issues. But... He still owes rule Georgia in the conservative base of his party yeah, absolutely. a lot. I mean, they, they powered his victory. Yeah. All right. And so if he were to go away from the guns and the, and the religious liberty uh, in his first couple of years, he, he'd We are so lucky we're going to get to cover this uh, <laughs> next year in the administration. Patricia, we're almost out of time. I said to you during a break, did we miss a story that you think or should have been in the top ten? And you said, well, I have one. What was yours? Well, and then I said during the break, oh, never mind, it was on there. <laughs> oh, oh okay. Does anybody else have a you story? Covered you I covered it as What's always. a story well, that we, um, you would have had? One of the stories we were expected to be one of the biggest stories of this year was Amazon. Um, uh, going into yeah. the year, we were looking at a special session. We don't even know. What is Amazon? Amazon's uh, <laughs> yeah, second headquarters, which would have been 50,000 jobs at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it turned out Georgia offered an incentives package topping about $2 billion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they were prepared to kind of open the floodgates in terms of uh, incentives and perks, even including a, a special spot at the airport, special place in the hotel near the airport, a special martyr car, all these different perks for Amazon, uh, which, of course, ended up splitting the difference and going to New York and Washington. Anybody else have a story that we think we missed? Well, I, I'll tell you what. Let me let me tell you about my favorite one. Okay. Not, not necessarily the most important, but I, uh, the, the, the bankruptcy of Sears, uh. the closing of Sears, uh, it taught me something that I did not know until I had a really long conversation with, with, with former mayor and UN ambassador Andrew Young. And that was the importance that the Sears catalog played uh, in, in really working around and helping to defeat Jim Crow in, in say, the pre-World War II South. Yeah, you wrote a beautiful column about that. Uh, you know what? If we can find it, we'll post it on uh, Political Rewind. We'll tweet it out. We'll get it out there. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. So Galloway loved that story because he remembers when Sears was still delivering by wagon uh, train. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are almost out of time. Very quickly, you have 20 seconds, each of you, to give a prediction about 2019. You got one? Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Greg? Georgia <laughs> becomes a full-fledged battleground state, and we're going to see a record investment in the Senate race and the presidential race and a lot of attention from national media and from presidential candidates. I totally agree. You stole my idea. Um, but yes, we used to see presidential candidates sort of come with a, maybe we'll send a surrogate, maybe we'll send a fringe, but this is going to be a real state worth fighting for. Let me, let me, let me come back here. Real right. quick. <laughs> Nick Ayers is going to be back. Uh, Nick Ayers oh, comes back from his job as uh, chief of staff for the vice president and his rejection of President Trump. What will Nick Ayers do next, aside from running this pack for the president's reelection? Amy, 20 seconds. <laughs> Agree with everything that's been said. I think the other thing that we're going to see in Georgia, which I think is terribly important, is a, a growing cadre of women who are running for office statewide um, and in the more local seats. I think we're seeing a big shift in the makeup of the Georgia House and Georgia Senate, and that's something to really pay attention to. Okay. Uh, by the way, that we've mentioned women running. Uh, it makes Melita Easter it's very, very happy. She has fought. She's been a panelist on our show. Uh, she has fought for years with the Georgia win list to get Democratic women who are pro-choice uh, to run for office, and she had a very big year. That's something we can uh, mention as well. All right, we are out of time for uh, today. Uh, Patricia Murphy, Amy Steigerwald, Jim Galloway, Greg Bluestein, you have been great 
great additions uh, this year to Political Rewind's panel. And I can't tell you how happy I am you all still are willing to give us some of your time, including on today's show. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, that's it for us. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your holiday season. Remember, you can uh, listen to us every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. on GPB Radio Statewide. You can watch us on Facebook Live. Our TV show is on on Sunday mornings, and pretty soon it'll be on on Friday nights at 7. So there's lots of ways you can get your political rewind in 2019. I'm Bill Nygut. Have a great holiday. <laughs>